Welcome back. This is episode 168 of Herpological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this week, we have an episode, a sort of snake-focused episode, right? That's what we're... Pretty snaky. Yeah? At least the beginning, yeah. One of the topics that comes up perhaps most frequently, trophic partitioning. So you've got your little niches. Yeah, Yeah, where you live in safe in your niche, where you have your little roll, you have your your food source, and you're having a fine old time, and no other animals are coming into your niche and stealing your goodies. I like niche partitioning. We talk about it quite a bit. I love the idea that each animal has its own little zone where it's inhabiting, where its behaviours are suited to sort of existing, you know, niche including where it lives, how it lives, what it eats, all that kind of fun stuff. And I always find that when you talk to people about the idea of niche partitioning, it like resonates a lot because it really sort of helps to contextualize an animal's existence in sort of its environment in amongst all the other animals. Yes, it goes a long way for that sort of human inclination to put things in boxes and the niche is its little box. Categorize it. Stay in your little box. One type of animal per box, please. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Nice and neat. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. Nice Obviously, in, in reality, the boxes are a little bit blurry and partially rotten and some of the edges have been chewed out and the animals can sort of fall out the bottom and crawl away. But it's a nice conceptualization or a useful conceptualization a lot of the time. Yeah. And so the paper we're going to be talking about, which explicitly deals with this issue of niche partitioning, is by Weiss and Kalki, published in 2023, so hot off the press, Trophic Niche Partitioning Between Sympatric Nyanaya and Tias Mucosa, Crowdsourced Data in Application to Community Ecology, published in the Journal of Herpetology. Obviously, we love the Journal of Herpetology. We consider ourselves to be herpetologists. So, yeah, good journal. Two snake species here. So, as the title says, they are sympatric, so their wild ranges overlap. They exist in the same place. The two species are the oriental rat snake, Tyus mucosa, and the spectacled cobra, Naya Naya. Obviously, both pretty cool snakes. Oriental rat snakes, they're found all over South and Southeast Asia, while the spectacled cobra is more limited to the Indian subcontinent. But yeah, they overlap. Like Bufo Bufo, which means toad toad in Latin, Naya mm-hmm. comes from the Sanskrit word Naga, which means cobra or snake. So Naya Naya, literally in Sanskrit, pretty much just means snake snake, and in Latin, which is nice and easy, kind of the OG snake. And v- venomous Naya Naya, and medically significant, it's a member of the big four, so responsible for the most snake bite cases in India. It's one of the four snakes that are most responsible for snake bite. And it's just a cool, you know, it does the things that cobras do. It hoods, it, uh, it's venomous. Classic cobra. Yeah. It doesn't spit venom. Many of them can spit venom. This one can't spit venom. But they do have, you know, when the cobra hoods up, they have that mark on the back. So the mm-hmm. hood mark on a spectacled cobra, if you imagine it's like hooded and looking at you, on the back side of that spread out neck, it has a little hood mark. And that hood mark is like two circular patterns. They're called ocelli. So like kind of a, a light circle inside a dark circle and they're connected by a light colored curved line and if you look at that in isolation it kind of looks a bit like spectacles it's like yeah two circles with yeah. a line between them and that's where they get the name spectacled cobra because they are bespectacled on their back of their heads um 
adult specimens of spectacled cobras, they get to about a metre, metre and a half long. Some, particularly in Sri Lanka, get massive. They can get to like over two metres. But that's where Island gigantism. Island gigantism, indeed, yes. <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah. laughs> a bit that, of a stretch, but all right. That word had giganticism. Yeah, it's quite uncommon that they get that big elsewhere. I mean, Sri Lanka's Sri Lanka, right? It could be a different species for all we know. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe someone will decide to investigate that. Maybe I don't already know how, uh, what's the rate of endinism, endicism, endinism on Sri Lanka compared to mainland India? It's not a massive distance. It's not. I know they have a, an endemic pit viper. They've got some other endemic snakes as well. I don't, hmm. I'd be surprised if no one's looked into Naya Naya. It's just one of those things. You shouldn't bring it up if you haven't read about it. So maybe yeah. someone will be... And but, sometimes um, it might just be a sampling thing that people haven't sa- sampled enough from Sri Lanka and the sort of near edge of India to make that separation yet. True that, yeah. But yeah, the, you know, spectacle cobras, they're tolerant of human habitation. They quite often co-occur with people. And yeah, they're, they're tolerant of a range of habitats as well. They're kind of, I guess you could call them a generalist species, whatever that means. Adaptable. Adaptable, yeah. The other species, oriental rat snakes, so tyus mucosa, they're big Colubrid snakes, so non-venomous yeah. in the family Colubridae. They can grow to over three meters long, and that apparently makes them the second largest snake in the family Colubridae in the whole world. Can you name the largest, Ben? For oh, that's exactly what I turned yeah. away from the camera, and I'm looking into space thinking, can I name the largest? I would have struggled if you'd asked me. I, I don't think if I've got it. I know lots of people that would get this in a heartbeat because they love oh, Colubrids, yeah. but they've I never mean, been my job. I think if you'd asked me in isolation, I probably would have guessed Mucosa, to be honest. Hmm. No, I don't know. I don't know. I can't even fathom a guess, actually. The biggest is Tyus carinata. Oh, another Tyus. Okay, well, that makes sense. Another Tyus. Yeah. Tyus carinata is a killed rat snake. And it's also found in, like, Southeast Asia. Um, But they're bigger. Yeah. They're even bigger. One cool thing I know about Tyus mucosa, they're obviously big. They do that neck flattening behavior where they sort of, Mm -hmm. like, flatten their neck sideways. So it's, like, a little bit cobra-y. It's kind of a similarity between the species. But Well, they have been mistaken for cobras in the past i can confirm that yeah especially where they overlap with kings because they're so big exactly people see a giant brown snake and they just think oh king cobra well especially like dim light up a tree something like that some sort of additional mitigating circumstances they're the right sort of shape because if you've got something like a python they're a lot chubbier in the mid body Mm. than the rat snake is so yeah yeah easy mistake to make i would say but this paper, they were kind of looking at what these two species eat. So they just got a bunch of data about what was inside their stomachs. Oh, no, 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 that wasn't it. It was based on um, citizen science, wasn't it? They looked to see like what people had recorded the snakes eating on social media and stuff. Was there it's some... a combination. 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 Yeah. yeah. So a little bit of um, social media scouring, a yep. little bit of museum specimens, a little bit of observations. Yep. Yep. Yeah, a little bit of everything, just to see, hey, what do these snakes eat? And a bit of citizen science platforms too. Yeah, because at the top of the show, we were saying, hey, we're talking about niche partitioning, where these two species, well, they exist in the same place and they're kind of broadly similar, they're snakes. How is it that they separate out what they're doing? And one of the ways you can find that out is to look at what they eat. And they wanted to see if there were differences in the two sort of dietary niches of these two species. And so, yeah, they sort of collated all the data and looked to see the kind of frequency of different prey items. And one thing that really surprised me I knew that spectacle cobras ate amphibians, but I didn't have oriental rat snakes pegged as big amphibian eaters at all. No, I, I thought if you were to ask me again, like in ignorance before reading this paper, I would have said the 
Mucosa would have been heavily mammal focused. Mm. That would have been my bet. Yeah, just because it looks like a generic rat snake. But yeah, they don't. They eat a lot of amphibians, and both species, as it turns out, eat a lot of snakes. They're also both cannibalistic, so the two species will eat smaller versions of themselves, which is ruthless, savage. More than that, though, what stood out to me about these two species is that they both eat each other. So yes. it's kind of this like, yeah. Race. So your, where's your niche partitioning now? Yeah, it's like if I'm small and you're big, you're gonna eat me, but then. If I survive and I get big enough, I'll eat your kids. I just yeah. love relationships like that in nature. It's so fiercely competitive. It's ruthless. It's very compelling. But yeah, both species frequently feeding on other snakes. Really common that they are cannibalistic. And it seems to be the case, at least for Naya Naya, that the cobras, that is, as they get bigger, they're eating more snakes. So when they're smaller, they're not yeah. so big on snakes. But once they reach a certain size, they're big enough to eat a lot more snakes. And then it's like, hell yeah, let's get some snakes. Or it might be the case that other prey groups are less worthwhile in comparison, right? So That's true. when you're a smaller snake, maybe there's a lot of small lizards that you can eat, no problem. But that becomes less of a, you know, how many big lizards are there going to be around in these areas? You've got your big varanids, but maybe those become harder to obtain as you get yeah. larger same for the amphibians i do want to add a note to your cannibalism point before we move on though and that they highlight in the paper the cannibalism stuff or any observation which is particularly interesting or weird or dramatic is more likely to be represented in this data because it's more likely to be recorded by someone and also put online snake eating rat might be less common as in less commonly recorded because it's more as expected boring therefore less noteworthy whereas cannibalism i mean that's pretty exciting isn't it cannibalism is one of the more exciting things yeah because yeah. it's like i mean i think any time that an animal exhibits a behavior that we find to be detestable or criminal yes. like you know <laughs> immoral incest in animals cannibalism animals we're like yeah. animals are weird animals aren't like us animals are gross and yeah we write it down we take a video put it on social media and then publicly shame them did they control for that in any way or was that just a note in the discussion i don't believe they have a way of really controlling for that because that's a fundamental sampling issue hmm. yeah that's good because okay, you don't know fine. the true rate of any prey at all if you'd known the like the rate the true frequency of any one prey you could probably sort of estimate okay if this prey is eaten 30% of the time but it shows up in the videos 20% of the time then maybe there's a ah, even then because you still don't know what the cannibalism one would be I'm not sure if there would be a way to do that mm. at all yeah that's fine yeah that's cool yeah that's cool sometimes there isn't so um I have to say Ben one thing reading this paper made me think of you and you know my heart bled for you a little bit because you had to read about particularly Nyanaya frequently consuming Dutafrinus melanosticus the Asian spine toad they both more do more commonly yeah they both do but Nyanaya tuck them tuck them down they're just yeah, like no problem more common than any other prey item and I was just wondering how that made you feel as a kind of toad lover where do you come down on the sort of lesser cobras that aren't king cobras do you still like them despite that or are you sort of a little is there a little bit of sort of do you harbor some kind of Bad ill will. There's no ill will. No ill will. Cobra's got a cobra. Cobra's got a cobra. Yeah, I mean, at I the end that's... of the day, Toad could just leave. So maybe toad. the Toad should just try harder. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Blame it on the victim. That's always a good, good strategy. <laughs> so um, 
<laughs> they do assume frequent nocturnal predation activities in both species. So based on what they're eating, yes. they're basically saying, yeah, they're probably active at night because these animals are active at night. And that includes like the, the toad. big toads. Yes. Yeah. And rodents as well. You don't really see rodents scooting around during the daytime as much as you see them at nighttime. So yeah, that kind of suggests that they're sort of doing this nocturnal thing. Another little fun thing to note, which I think is just something I wouldn't expect from sort of rat snake versus cobra stuff, is the cobra was the one that was taking domestic chickens and their eggs, and the Mm. rat snake was not. I would have, again, prior to reading this paper, I would have guessed the exact opposite. Yeah, I think you're right. I would as well. If you ask me which was more likely to eat the... Yeah, if someone says to you what's coming and eating chickens, it's going to be a rat snake, really, because, yeah, all over the world right? you see them doing that. There's so many pictures online of just, like, rat snake eats egg. Rat snake can no longer escape chicken coop. <laughs> Angry yeah. homeowner finds rat snake. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, that's it. And so, obviously, they've kind of shed light on a lot of the differences between these two species in terms of what they're eating and also just the fact that, actually, broadly speaking, what they're eating is quite similar. And they make the point sort of towards the end, which is that, Diet is really only one element of this kind of like landscape of niche difference, right? Yeah, you've got things that you eat that are going to be different, but you're also going to have things like activity patterns. Are they active at slightly different times of the day? Space use, are they using different kinds of habitats in which to hunt? They might still be encountering similar prey, but they could be hunting in different ways or using different strategies, in which case that's kind of further existence of niche partitioning. So there is kind of the important elements of time and space which aren't taken into consideration alongside diet but i think this is like a cool first step and i mean you know these are two snakes which i don't know i probably felt like i knew a reasonable amount about like they're quite commonly studied or whatever but despite that this paper really is like delivering some pretty shocking news about what they actually consume well, it's, it's good to actually get it sort of detailed and, and spelled out like this, isn't it? Because you can suspect things or there's sort of no knowledge, but actually having it detailed and having something backing up is a really big deal. The other thing is just incredibly hard data to collect at a scale which actually represents the species, right? Mm. They're very widely distributed. If you were to do a niche partitioning study in the field, there is no way without a huge amount of backing and funding that you could do something across the scale that this study has been done over. I mean, we're talking all of India all the way up into uh, northern Myanmar for this one. And that's only possible because you're making use of these sort of diverse, incidentally collected, a lot of the time, um, pieces of data. Okay, that comes with its limitations because of sort of sampling and biases of what people are recording and where people are, but it's still incredibly valuable. And as you say, it's, a, it's an important first step because then, okay, if you want to do some targeted field stuff, at least you've got a better idea of what should be happening or at least where to target it or what to target it in terms of prey. Yeah, yeah, precisely. So yeah, I think that pretty much sums up what's been going on in this ter- in oriental rat snakes and snakes called cobras. Yeah, these authors have done really well to find out a lot more about their diet and how they might be partitioning the habitat in in that sort of um, dimension. Have you got anything else on these guys? I don't have anything else on these guys, no. Okay, well, let's move on, shall we, from snakes that are eating toxic toads to a brand newly described species of toad, which is itself probably toxic. Okay, so this is a paper by 
Mangia, Santana, Oliveira Drummond, Saba, Uyoni, Costa and Wachlewski, published in 2023, a new species of Brachycephalus from Serra do Tabuero, southern Brazil, published in Vertebrate Zoology. Another one brand new, hot off the press. Saw a picture of this animal and I was like, holy moly, that's a good looking little frog. Let's do a species the bi week on that guy. So in the last decade, the number of Brachycephalus species has more than doubled. So there are now 40 species of these ridiculous little creatures. And why do I call them ridiculous? Well, it's because they can't jump properly. They can jump, but they cannot land. These are some of the smallest vertebrates in the world. And their little heads are so small that they don't have space for the apparatus inside the inner ear that keeps your equilibrium. We covered this, right? We covered this on a previous episode that their their little ear balance mechanism is incapable of keeping up with the uh, velocity of their leaps. So they just sort of yep. tumble like, I don't even know what they tumble like, just well, like something which has absolutely no control over the way it falls yeah. through the air. Totally. Yeah. It's flying through the air. <laughs> because they don't have the inner ear, after they jump, they basically have no idea what's going on. They can't, they can't sort just of committed. situate themselves yeah. in space. So they're just like, Wah! and then, yeah, they just smash down on the floor every time. <laughs> but, you know, hopping is still a valuable anti-predator defense mechanism. If you're now 20 centimeters away from the threat, then it wasn't a failed mission. And how are they going to predict where you're going if not even you know? It's flawless. That's actually a really good point. As long as you don't, you know, fling yourself off a cliff. Well, that's, yes. I bet you the terminal velocity of these guys means that they could survive a fall from a very great height, so. That's cool. I bet you. Yeah, they don't have the ear stuff that we have. They lack the external ear opening altogether. So they can only hear very deep sounds. And oddly enough, some of the species in this genus still actually vocalize, despite being deaf to their own calls, which is nuts. So they're still making this little sound, even though they themselves can't hear it. But it's intended as a advertisement call, as an advertisement call for males communicating with each other. Or at least it probably was historically. In some of these species, because they have no longer got the ability to hear because they've become so miniaturized, they think that actually the movement of the vocal sac alone, so the bit underneath the chin that comes out and in as they make the sounds is actually now what they're using to communicate. So rather than hearing each other, they're just looking around visual. for the little throats moving because they do arm huh. waving and stuff as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Associated with frogs that make those sounds. And um, yeah, because they're really brightly colored, um, they're active in the day so they can see each other and um, they're doing this arm waving stuff. So yeah, they think it might be a form of visual communication and they're kind of just still in the process of evolving to lose the sound that kind of goes with it. I mean, they don't know they're making a sound. How are they supposed to control it? So yes, I guess the only way is through evolution and decades and generations of savage mishaps. They don't know which way they are when they're jumping. They can't hear the sounds they make when they're making sounds. They're just bumbling through life. Like, what? what come on, little pumpkin toadlets. What, what are you I doing? Know. Kind of relatable, though. If only. So yeah, they can't really jump properly, but luckily they're highly toxic, right? So even if they're making noises and animals spot them and think, oh, I'll eat them, they're toxic. So they probably won't. Most predators are ignoring them. And so that is the context of this kind of group, this genus of little toadlets. 
And the authors of this paper, you know, they wanted to contribute to our knowledge about the kind of diversity of this group. And so they were doing a survey in Serra do Tabuero State Park, which is in Santa Catarina in southern Brazil. And during a survey for frogs and toads, they collected these little toadlets. And the area, the area they were surveying in, they described it, Ben, as ombrophilus. Ombrophilus, which is a new word. At least for me. Oh, oh, right. I thought that they made a new word. Not no, that they didn't you learned a word. word. I learned a word. You're about to learn a word as well. Do you know what it means? No. <laughs> exactly. So I thought maybe as a little clue, as like a sort of tongue in cheek clue, I could say that all English people are ombrophilus. Uh, well, enjoy the color red. Also. <laughs> enjoy the color red. Good idea. But no. Why, how would a forest enjoy the color red? Uh, by becoming red to... in the autumn. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. And okay. these frogs will crawl onto uh, old brown autumn-coloured leaves to hide themselves with their orange, admittedly aposomatic colouring that then doubles as uh, cryptic during a certain time of year. It's a nice idea, but you've like really fundamentally misunderstood the task. The word describes the forest itself. So like basically ombrophilus means capable of withstanding or thriving in the presence of much rain. So places ah. where it rains a lot and the forest does well. So yeah. just like the toadlets themselves. Exactly. Bang on. So yeah, we're in this ombrophilus dense forest Ombrophilus. up to a thousand meters above sea level. Very wet, very rainy. They call it in Brazil Campos de Altitude. Well, they're the highland fields around the kind of forest patches. So, you know, these are sky islands. These are areas of high altitude where mm -hmm. there's like lots of rain. And obviously, I think they're quite good for cultivation. So, you know, you shouldn't think of these places as like these beautiful, well-preserved sky islands. They're not. It's like there are small patches of remaining forest in and amongst farms. But in one of these remaining patches, they found this brand new species. And they called it Brachycephalus tabulero, which is... Based on the type locality, so the area it was first found, Serra do Tablero, and this is like the last, the largest remaining remnant of the Atlantic rainforest in southern Brazil. And the, the, a lot of that area is contained within a national park, which is obviously good for the species. And this is actually the southernmost species of pumpkin toadlet that's been described. Before you jump cool. onto that, though, do you know what brachycephalus means? Well, cephalus is to the head. Right. Brachy. 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 All I can think of is Brachiosaurus. Mm-hmm. What was that famous for? Did it have a lump on its head or something? Is it Brachy? We've had this one before. Is it something to do with the skull, maybe? I think it should be short-headed, is Brachycephalus. Oh. So it just means a Brachy is short. Yeah, because Brachy... Short head. Yeah, because like yeah. Brachycardia. Short of... Brachycardia. Cardia. Sure. Yeah, no, there's brachycardia and tachycardia. I can never remember which way around it is. Brachycardia. Oh, no, that's bradycardia. Literally, yeah. Why don't I just shut up? <laughs> He's trying, you folks. Idiot. He's trying. He's trying You hard. can see the connections you know, in the brain firing off. Yeah, it's just that they're all misaligned and connected to the wrong stuff. Yeah. So it's just a waste if of time. If it rhymes, but hey, it's pretty it's much the same around in there. Yeah. But yes, short-headed. And they do have a short face because they've got a little stub face. They do. They're adorable. They look silly. Let's talk about how beautiful this creature is, man. Oh, you were going to say about southern Brazil, but... Uh, oh, they just increase the range. It's the southernmost species. It's kind of cool, but that's about it. Wow. 
In terms of description, then, they're like a little moldy jelly bean. Orange, so like a orange or citrusy flavoured jelly bean with a sort of greeny, dapply covering on the back that doesn't extend to the face, so they still have little little orange faces and deep, dark, black eyes. They almost are comedically featureless in terms of body shape. They are, yeah. They're just so small that they can barely even have a face. Yes. But yeah, really orange, really beautiful, and kind of like, yeah, like you say, like varying greenishness on the back. They're a centimetre long. A centimetre, so small. Oh, wow. And they've got little stick legs, too. <laughs> yeah, they do have little stick legs. Their legs are ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, it's like a child's drawing of a frog. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah, really small heads. And presumably these things are eating little flies and stuff like that. Um, Mimecophagus. tiny invertebrates. Mimecophagus. Right? Ants. Could be. Could be. I don't think they know. I don't think they know too much about it. They're found under leaf litter, below dry leaves. Ah, cryptozoic. Kind of mm-hmm. All right, all right. You simmer down. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've got to practice these words otherwise I'll forget them. <laughs> That's true, yeah. I mean, that is, yeah, no, you're right. We do need to use them. I mean, it's lucky that people put these confusing words that you have to Google every time in papers, otherwise where would we be? <laughs> But yeah, I think that's really all there is to be said about this new species, isn't there? You got anything else interesting about Brachycephalus tabularu? No, not really. Other than their defensive behaviour is just opening their mouths. (laughs) Which, (laughs) for a centimetre long frog, not that intimidating for anything larger than a Brachycephalus, I would say. Yeah, I think they're mostly relying on the fact that they're bright orange and poisonous. Yeah, and the inside of their mouth is also orange, so it could be sort of doubling up that... Oh, that's wicked, actually. Yeah, that's really cool. I wonder if that's the like, sort of last resort when the predator's super close, the little orange Could surprise. Be. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, well, um, yeah. They're beautiful. Lovely. I haven't got anything else to say about them. Have you got any other business for this week? I do. I have one little bit of any other business. It's a bit of a non-story in terms of I don't really have much to go for it, but someone in Australia found, well, I suppose the doctors found a eight centimeter roundworm in their brain apologies for people eating while listening to the podcast but the worm has been extracted and they found out that it's a known species of roundworm that is usually found in pythons so it's one of these cases of a what do you call it zoonotic zoonotic disease transfer zoonotic parasite transfer from they believe carpet pythons most likely into somebody's poor brain and uh, oh my gosh it's suggested that it probably occurred because the person foraged grasses and the like from areas that carpet pythons were in uh, likely had some remnants of carpet python excrement on with worm eggs or something along those lines and uh, got infected uh, that way crazy man Wow. So it was in Australia. Wash your salad. Yeah, Australia. Wash your salad, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. It's so unusual that you hear about parasites from reptiles getting involved with humans because 
mammals are usually the stage before reptiles because reptiles eat lots of mammals kind of thing. At least that's how I always think of it. So yeah, that's a little bit scary. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Damn. Well, that's grisly and horrifying. Well, it's just quite ex- quite um, surprising. You're going to say exciting then. Yeah, I was, was going to say exciting. I meant surprising. <laughs> Somebody's got a roundworm. For a reptile parasite to jump into a human because of just how different, you know, that's reptiles and mammal. That's kind of a, a big switch. But yeah. Yeah. Now well, you know. Well, I just have one other brief mention. Um, that is to just give a shout out to our newest patron. Thank you very much, Isabel. You're a ledge. And uh, yeah, massively appreciated. And also yeah, shout out you. to all the other patrons. Like, yeah, building them up, which is really gratifying, especially now we're back on the mic. So yeah, expect a continuation of your scheduled programming. We should be doing them every week now for the foreseeable. So we will do our best. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think... All that remains to be said is if you want to f- find us on social media, you can. If you want to get in touch with us, please email us at herphighlights at gmail.com. If you've got any questions, recommendations, corrections. And beyond that, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>